Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff-side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. And welcome back to Employee to Lawyer. We are your hosts. I'm Max Barrick. And I'm Amit Bindra. And today we are speaking with Charlie Weissong, who is a partner at Hughes Sokol, Piers Resnick, and is that Dim? Dim? Yes, sir. Dim. Dim. Uh, limited. Charlie has a wide-ranging practice with a focus on civil rights, labor and employment law, KETAM claims, education law, and complex business litigation. But Charlie was also a law clerk to the Honorable Richard Posner of the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit and used to work at Equip for Equality. Charlie, welcome. Hey, great to be with you guys. Thanks for making time for us on a Sunday. Happy to be here and uh, talk about all the good stuff we're able to do. <laughs> Sounds good. So let's dive in. So you are our first guest who's got a practice. Well, maybe not the first, just the first that we've covered with them, who's had a focus on whistleblower and key TAM type claims. So let's let's split these out first. Can you talk a little bit about the whistleblower work you do? Sure. So, you know, I think of whistleblower work and key TAM cases as sort of employee adjacent because so many whistleblowers encounter fraud in their employment. And, and you can kind of think about it as the whistleblower claim is the primarily employment claim when someone experiences retaliation for speaking up at work about fraud or doing other things to to oppose misconduct or discrimination by their employer. And then that's often related, but not always, to a a type of of claim, usually under the False Claims Act, we call it a key TAM claim, in which the whistleblower comes forward on behalf of the government. It's a, it's a separate type of action advocating for the fraud on the government to help recover funds that were wrongly lost. And so we can talk about that mechanism, but you can think of it as the, the employment claim, largely like a retaliation claim for the employee, and then sort of the government's claim in which the employee can help the government fight fraud with some really amazing results. And just so just so I even understand it, so the, the first bucket would just be an employee suffers some sort of misconduct, retaliation, bad action from the company or from the employer. And the second bucket is the employer notices that the employer or the company has defrauded the government and then thus is filing a suit on behalf of the government. Is that right? Yeah, sure. So you can think of a whistleblower claim a a little bit like a discrimination retaliation claim, right? Somebody who speaks up about race discrimination or that they're being paid wrong or that the employer is violating a health and safety law or some other fraud or misconduct, right? We have a statutory claim in Illinois. We have a common law claim. You know, you can't be fired or demoted or denied a promotion for opposing illegal conduct by your employer generally with some details that a lawyer can walk through with you. And so we work with a lot of people who, you know, you know, I have some former clients who were you know, informants for the FBI against their employer and then got retaliated against. I have I had a guy last week who spoke up about race discrimination and, and pay problems and got fired, right? Like a retaliation claim. And those claims are about, you know, the employee who lost their job or who lost pay or who was harassed. And that employee can sue their employer for that wrongdoing. And it's really about what happened to them and and their wrongful termination or other employment actions. That's the whistleblower bucket, which can be related to sort of fraud on the government or not. There's a lot of different kinds of whistleblowers. And, you know, we've on this podcast before talked about Title VII and the Illinois Human Rights Act, but two acts we haven't really talked about for the most part. One is the Whistleblower Act itself, which is a statutory claim in Illinois. 
And then the second one is what you've mentioned already, the False Claims Act. Can you tell us a little bit about those two acts and how, I mean, they're different, but they're both whistleblower type claims. Sure. So, so the whistleblower statute gives the employee the cause of action, the right to sue when they're opposing you know, illegal conduct or various things covered by the act. It says just like you can't fire someone for complaining about race discrimination, you can't fire someone for telling their boss, hey, we can't break the law here. And if they do, then you can get compensation and, and remedy for what happened to the employer, employee as a whistleblower. Now, the False Claims Act is really an entirely separate sort of set of laws, and there's a federal false Claims Act for fraud on the federal government and federal funds. There's a state false claims act, which is about fraud on the government, the state government. There's also actually what's called the Illinois Insurance Claims Fraud Prevention Act for about fraud on private insurance companies, which I've done some litigation under. Even the city of Chicago really has a has an ordinance with a with a key TAM or false claims provision. And so anytime someone, it's usually an employee, doesn't have to be, is aware of and has sufficient information about fraud on the government, an employer, a competitor, any business entity, person cheating the government out of money, they can come forward with that information and tell the government, hey, you know, my boss is a doctor and they were defrauding Medicaid because they weren't following rule X, Y, and Z. Hey, my employer you know, has a contract with the Department of Transportation and they lied about this or that. You know, it could be a prevailing wage violation, could be a contract violation, could be somebody you know, lying to get money out of the government, could be one of these PPP programs. These all have whistleblower protections. And with a, with a whole variety of sort of legal technicalities about how you bring the lawsuits, the basic idea is the private citizen, usually an employee, but not always, who knows about fraud can come forward, tell the attorney general's office, tell the Department of Justice, hey, this fraud is going on. And then there's a process by the, the whistleblower in that case, we call them a relator, can either litigate with the government to get the money back or can uh, litigate on their own, depending on what the government does. And the remedies are really, really powerful. So when, when someone knows about fraud on the government, there's tremendous potential not only to stop the fraud, which is what most whistleblowers are about, but also for them to uh, be protected from retaliation and to recover sometimes from that fraud. So are there certain industries, so let me back up. Hearing what you say and just by virtue of what I do, I, I understand that like nursing homes or like managed care facilities can be rife for that sort of abuse, right? Like they're the types that are their volume businesses, they're paid by the government to care for private individuals through Medicaid or Medicare a lot of the time. And from what I understand anyway, having never litigated one of these, there is a lot of incentive for those sorts of businesses to cut corners, perhaps misrepresent what sort of billing they're doing on different individuals or, or headcounts and whatnot. Is that something you come across a lot? And then what are some other industries where you see it and some common examples of it maybe? Sure. So, you know, anywhere there's government money, there's fraud, right? There's lots of ethical businesses out there, but the tremendous incentive happens when you have government spending money is people cut corners. As you say, they inflate the number of procedures they provided, or they, you know, exaggerate the services, or they cut corners and don't provide, you know, what they're supposed to under the contract with the government. You see it a lot in healthcare just because there's so much money. Anybody cheating Medicare or Medicaid, breaking rules, using uncredentialed staff, not providing every service that's required. Anytime you 
you get into not following the requirements of federal health care programs or state health care programs, you potentially get into a, a claim that could be brought under a key TAM statute. You see it a lot in defense contracting. You see it a lot in healthcare adjacent industries like pharmaceuticals. You know, I had a big case in Nevada against a hospice company that, that was doing the same thing, sort of exaggerating, having people who weren't really qualified, putting them on hospice. You know, we have cases against insurers who cut corners too, just because there's so much money obviously going through Medicare Advantage and other government insurance programs. Anytime somebody's interacting with the government, you have this potential. There are construction contractors who get caught not paying prevailing wage, and that can result in a false claims. There are for-profit colleges that have gotten caught under these lawsuits. The thing really to think about as an employee or a whistleblower or even a lawyer is anytime you say, hey, wait a minute, the government is getting cheated here, there might be a false claim. And, and the great thing about this is the False Claims Act has triple damages. It has civil penalties. It, you know, you can get you know, barred from ever contracting with the government again. And so the 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 potential remedies for against people who cheat the government are extremely strong, of course, because we don't want the government to be cheated. But that gives a lot of potential for someone who knows about fraud to really make a difference when they come forward. Because the way it works is the whistleblower usually gets a reward. They get a compensation for coming forward. So if you bring a million bucks to the government by recovering from fraud, you know, 20% of it may go back to the whistleblower. And so- there's a tremendous financial incentive for people who know about fraud to come forward uh, and work with a lawyer to see whether it can fit in with one of these state or local or federal laws to fight against that fraud. So we, we've talked on this show about how somebody who's fired for whistleblowing might bring a case, right? You, you can go to court. You might send a demand letter to, to suggest to the employer that it's in their best interest not to let this uh, escalate, but but generally it's a straightforward process. Can you talk about how somebody acts as a whistleblower under the False Claims Act, like what the steps are to initiate that process and go through it? Sure. And, and, and this is, you know, the statute has a lot of potential, but a lot of requirements. And so it, it can be tricky. The first thing is, you know, while in general, employees can even bring their own lawsuit pro se, because we're look, talking about the government's interest, you have to work with a lawyer, right? You can't just bring your own false claims that case. You have to have a lawyer help you. And what you do first is investigate and get together the information you have. Sometimes it's current employees who have, you know, seen documents or have information at work about fraud happening. Sometimes it's a former employee who may or may not have information. And you put together a description of the fraud with whatever documents and evidence you have. And there's a process by which you first have to give that to the government. You tell the government's attorneys they can know about the fraud. And then there's a procedure by which you file the lawsuit either in state or federal court, but you have to do it under seal and you have to give notice to the right government attorneys. And then once you've told the government there's a period of time where the case is under seal. The statute says at least 60 days, but often it's six months or a year or two or three years. These things can take a while, but it's under seal, which means that the case is completely secret, which gives the government in time to investigate the fraud because ultimately we're trying to help them stop the fraud and we want to let them investigate what's going on before they tip off the company who's being accused of fraud. And after that investigation, you reach a point at which either the government joins the case against the defendant or the whistleblower, the relator goes on with their lawyer to litigate it themselves. And then you to go to a more traditional lawsuit. So that's sort of how the, the lawsuit would begin under the False Claims Act. So in other settings, when someone tries to allegedly claim a fraud, 
in that type of lawsuit or complaint, they have to include additional facts relative to other types of claims. Is that the case here where more evidence has to be included in the initial lawsuit because it's a fraud claim under the fraud uh, false claims act? Yes, you know, for the for the lawyers out there, right? Rule nine B would apply to fraud, um, yep. and there's a whole developed case law about when a whistleblower has enough details and information to bring a credible allegation of fraud. And one of the sort of tricks about these lawsuits is how can you, you know, a whistleblower probably sees you know, a sliver of the fraud, right? If you're in accounting, you see the invoices. If you work in a medical clinic, you see what the doctor's doing, but you don't see the invoices. You know, some people see that their competitors are cheating the government and they can collect enough evidence to, hey, bring a lawsuit against a competing company because they know that they're breaking, you know, healthcare rule X, Y, or Z. And so I think that's a lot of what the whistleblower lawyer does is work with the, the client, the whistleblower who really knows the industry, who knows the fraud, who knows what's happening and say, how can we gather up all of the information we need to explain with credibility uh, and enough detail the fraud that's happening here to get the case off the ground. And there's creative ways to investigate. I've had clients doing recorded phone calls. There are create, you know, there are ways to call information from public databases and put together evidence of fraud. But that's really the collaborative process between the lawyer and the whistleblower at the beginning to say, hey, you can't just say, I think my, you know, my employer was cheating the government. You need some examples. You need some specifics. And that's what you uh, want to put together so that the government knows that there's really something likely there from the beginning to investigate. So you're absolutely right. You've got to have some information. And that's what a lot of we do at the beginning is work with clients to develop that, that explanation and record to have a viable case. Does the government have factors or some process it considers to determine whether or not it's going to take the lead in the lawsuit versus the whistleblower's attorney? You know, government lawyers are incredibly busy, right? And so right. part of it is they just don't have time, which is why these laws are so amazing. It allows private whistleblowers to really extend the reach of the government attorneys. And, you know, when they look for a case to intervene in, part of it is the strength of the claims, right? You know, how much evidence is there? Part of it is the harm, right? Is the government being cheated out a lot out of a lot of money or are patients maybe being hurt? Is there really some harm there that they need to jump in and stop? And part of it is just their priorities, right? For a while, the government was really focused on the hospice industry. For a while, they've been focused now on diagnostic labs, right, that build the government. Right now, obviously, any sort of uh, COVID relief money fraud, I think, is something they're very attuned to fighting. And so it really kind of talks about, it depends a little bit on not only what you've got to bring to the government, but, you know, what their priorities are right now, just because they have so many claims. And, and the great thing is, though, if the government gets involved, you can really have some amazing outcomes and, and fight fraud, fraud with some, some terrific um, results. But the power of the statutes is there are amazing results when the government doesn't get involved. You know, we have cases where the government, for one reason or another, didn't get involved. And then we do that, right? That's what the lawyers do with the whistleblowers is litigate the case of fraud still for the benefit of the government. And so whether they get involved or not. So from you know, a remedy really standpoint, sure. you mentioned earlier, it can depend. It, it almost sounded like a percentage of the recovery. Is that statutory or how does that typically function? And is that also based upon the... Inv how much involvement the government had in the lawsuit? 
Sure. So the 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 whistleblower awards we talk about in the relator share is done as a percentage of the recovery for the government. So at the end of a case, when it settles or when there's a verdict, the statutes provide ranges, right? So under the federal statute, if the government got involved, you'd get 15 to 25 percent. If the government didn't get involved, you had to do it yourself. You get 25 to 30 percent of the recovery. The state statutes have different percentages. Local, you know, local ordinances have different percentages. But you figure somewhere, you know, 20, 25 percent of whatever money is recovered for the government goes back to the whistleblower for bringing forward the information, right? The government would have, wouldn't have recovered anything if they weren't told about it before, if they weren't tipped off and if they weren't helped by the whistleblower. And where you fall within that range at the high end or the low end is really just a, something that depends on what information the, the whistleblower had to come forward, how well they worked with the government. And usually the government and whistleblower come to some agreement. Okay, in this case, we agree that it's going to be 28% or whatever the number is. And then there's a process by which the judge can set it if there's a dispute um, with the government. But it, it can be really, you know, it can be really an incredible outcome, right? I mean, some frauds, you know, for, for tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, some frauds for, for tens and hundreds of millions of dollars. It really just depends. But the, the fact that you have triple damages plus statutory penalties, plus attorney's fee shifting, plus interest. I mean, if you catch a company or an entity defrauding the government, the remedies are really, really strong. And so there's a tremendous opportunity not only to help the government and stop them getting cheated, but for the whistleblower to be you know, compensated for all the work they put into that. So, Charlie, you talked about what the government considers and what the remedies are. How does the case itself look differently if the government is taking lead or involved versus if it if the government passes on it and a private firm, say yours, um, is bringing the case forward? Hey, this is Ahmed and Max. Thanks for listening to Employee to Lawyer. I hope you're all enjoying the show and the content and all of our guest stories. And we'd love your help in spreading news about Neil Illinois and the show. Please encourage your friends and family to subscribe and share. And if you happen to listen to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a nice review. But only if it's going to be a five-star rating. Yeah, otherwise we're all set. That's a great question. I think the first half of the case is the same. No matter what, when a whistleblower comes to me, and often it's people who have an employment situation and we're talking to them, oh, I was wrongly fired. And I talk about why and we discover, oh, wait a minute, your employer was doing what? I mean, that's how a lot of uh, whistleblowers discover these laws because they're not that well known. But in the beginning, no matter what's going to happen, the lawyer and the whistleblower put together the case, they do the investigation, they bring it to the government, they explain it, they help you know do the legal analysis and factual analysis for the government. And then you reach a point where the government declines or the government intervenes. If the government declines, that means they, you know, sit back, you keep them updated, but the, the lawyer, the private lawyer and whistleblower does the litigation, right? They, they serve discovery requests, they do the depositions, they do all the briefing, you know, it's as if it's their case, except at the end of the day, right, you're recovering money for the government and so the government always controls settlement. If the government does intervene, right, if they're going to join the lawsuit as an active litigant, it really becomes much more of a partnership, right? The whistleblower and the government attorneys together would do discovery. Together, they would do motion practice. Together, they would do depositions, right? It's really a team and this sort of that working relationship is a lot of what I do as a whistleblower blower, lawyer is how do we support and amplify the government's role? And that good partnership is key when they intervene to litigating together, just like co-counsel, right? A lot of these cases are big. It involves multiple attorneys, multiple firms. It's a lot of what we do is walk, work with other solos or other um, uh, smaller law firms to bring these cases, particularly when they you know get declined and have more litigation to do.
So it sounds like when an employee comes to you with one of these claims, often they may have multiple claims uh, with multiple different statutes of limitation. So for example, if someone's been wrongly separated, their, their statute of limitations under Title VII or the IHRA, the Human Rights Act, it's going to be different probably than the Whistleblower Act. So do you then file maybe one complaint and then have the separate key TAM stuff going on in the background, or how does that function? You know, that's a great question. And actually, the False Claims Act itself has its own retaliation provision. So, you know, there can be many layers of claims that are sort of the employee's claims and then the government's claims. And one of the tricks is one of the reasons, you know, lawyers and, and whistleblowers need to be careful is that because the government claims are under seal, you know, it can get really messy. If you try to settle your race discrimination claims and you sign some kind of release, does that then interfere with your ability to bring the government's claim? Because because not all but very frequently, as you say, the employee's own claims are going to be on a shorter deadline. They're going to be much simpler, much easier to resolve. But you have to really be careful about how you negotiate those settlements and those releases so that you don't you know, bar yourself <laughs> from bringing the yeah. bigger case against, you know, about the fraud under the False Claims Act, you know, in the longer term. Because these key TAM cases, you know, because you're working with the government and because of the nature of fraud, you know, they take a while, right? They take years to resolve. And that's just inherent um, in those lawsuits. So I think you're absolutely right. You have to always counsel every, every whistleblower, you know, what are the relative strengths and weaknesses? I've had clients who have really just not even pursued their own wrongful termination remedies, frankly, because, you know, the, 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 the dynamics of their career and their position and what happened, it just made a lot more sense not to even go down the path of getting them some severance because they knew about a fraud that was so substantial. It just makes a lot more sense to move on with their career and pursue the fraud exclusively. Other times that's not true. Other times you have a little bit information of fraud and you have a really good employment claim. And so you might make the choice as a whistleblower. Well, I'm going to settle my own case. So I'm going to do that. And maybe I'll tip off the government and not pursue it as a key TAM claim, right? I'll send my information. And if the government pursues it, that's great. And so I think that's why it's really been great for us as employee lawyers is that we can help manage not only the fraud side of that, but the employment side of that. So people really get the counsel they need to pursue whichever remedy makes sense for their particular situation or pursue both because you can do it. It just gets really tricky when you're entering discovery in an employment case and you've got an under, under seal case you can't talk about. There's a lot of just sort of minefields to navigate there. And it's fun to help people do that. How is it common for the whistleblower for a false claims act to be a current employee or a former employee? It sounds form. It sounds like most of the time it's a former employee, but it's, yeah. It's it's always easier to sue a former employer than a current employer, but but it happens both ways. Often people talk to a lawyer when they're still employed, and sometime along the way separate, right? Under some circumstance, I think you know if you looked across what cases they get brought, it's frequently former employees, but it doesn't have to be, right? A current employee has a really unique opportunity, you know, with current information to bring to the government stuff that's really helpful. At the same time, you've got to have a lawyer's counsel, right? About what do you do with company documents? How do you treat confidential information? Where you know now navigating all of those things. It can be done, right? The law recognizes nobody's going to stop the government from pursuing fraud, but typically it's at the end of an employment situation that people encounter uh, a lawyer as you would expect and then bring these fraud cases. And you mentioned earlier, there's a federal law, but there's also state equivalent. So tell us a little bit then about the state false claims act. Yeah, so we are really lucky in Illinois. The, the biggest law that gets used is the state is the Federal False Claims Act, just because there's so much federal money. But anybody who's cheating the state of Illinois is violating the Illinois False 
Claims Act, right? I mean, that could be housing programs, that could be Medicaid, that could be any type of state program. And so we have a state false claims act that is very similar that you bring with the Illinois attorney general. And we also have what is unique is the Illinois Insurance Claims Fraud Prevention Act, which is a long way of saying there's a, another key TAM statute about fraud on private insurance companies. If you know somebody who's cheating State Farm, who's cheating Allstate, who's cheating Blue Cross Blue Shield, who's cheating any insurer, healthcare, property, anything, you can bring a claim to expose that fraud. And I actually had a case in the Illinois Supreme Court about a year ago where we defended um, the constitutionality of that statute, right? Because here you have a person, a private person who's suing about fraud on a private insurance company. And the question was sort of, you know, for the lawyer nerds, right? Like, what's the standing for that, right? How can the private, how can the private person have standing to sue on behalf? And we litigated that all the way up to the Illinois Supreme Court. And they said, no, you know, people have been doing these key TAM statutes since the 1800s. There's nothing wrong with it. They work with the attorney general. And so it's allowed. And so what's special here is anybody who knows about fraud on private insurance companies in Illinois or about on the state, or frankly, even on like the city of Chicago has a whistleblower statute, any fraud on the government, somebody ought to think, hey, wait a minute. If I have evidence and information the government's getting cheated, there may be a way to, to use that to stop it. And the idea is that we all pay, right? Just like taxpayers ultimately bear the cost of of fraud on the government, you know, insurance policyholders ultimately pay for fraud on the insurance company. So the idea is these frauds hurt all of us. And so we ought to have some really strong laws to stop them. Are there any other industries that are carved out? So there's the government, there is insurance companies, are those kind of the two main buckets where there can be fraud under the state statute? Yep. No, that's that's basically it for these key TAM statutes so far, right? And they work a little bit like the private attorney general statute out of California, right? The PAGA Act, which is kind of an interesting thing, but it's a similar sort of private people and their attorneys expanding the, re- the reach of government and the ability and capacity to enforce laws that are important to all of us. But that's the key, fraud on the government, any government, fraud on insurers, any insurers. And that's when you know folks ought to be looking out for these claims. <laughs> I was just going to ask, Charlie, is there anything else special about these lawsuits or or interesting or, I guess, really noteworthy cases you've been involved in that you're really proud of or that you think uh, people might find interesting that, you, that you're comfortable sharing today? Well, you know, the trick is a lot of them are under seal for a while, right? Well, that's, but, that's, you know, a fair, yeah. that's a fair point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, I'm not going to go a, anywhere close to that. Saying, I have I'll a just... lot of cool stuff on my plate I can't talk about. <laughs> I can't tell you about <laughs> any just... of it. <laughs> I just say, you know what, without without going to specifics, I think the thing that is great about this area is, you know, my whole career, and we can talk about is like around sort of public minded and public interest law. And it's, it's, it's fabulous. We have these statutes that can help, you know, private individuals really fight for the government and you get to go really deep into industries you never knew anything about, you know, what are the requirements of this or particular healthcare program. There's some really cool investigations we've been able to put together with some really creative things around, you know, recorded phone calls and whatnot to gather evidence. I mean, you know, I've never worked for the government, but as a, it's incredible what kind of things they can come up with and to work as a partner with the government and help someone do that. It's just really fascinating. And so it, it's exciting to me that we have these laws to advance these causes. I was going to say, how did you end up doing this sort of work? I mean, we're going to do another episode for our listeners. We're going to have another episode with Charlie. That's going to probably be a little more biographical coming up. I mean, we're recording it today. You all will hear it sometime down the road, but at the risk of kind of stealing from that, from that episode, how did you end up falling into this area? 
You know, I came to use Sokol Pierce Magic and Dim, you know, HSPRD because they have a tremendously varied practice, right? A lot of the core of it is employment work. And you can see how out of that um, practice, if you're interacting with employees and whistleblowers, you find folks who know about these frauds. And steadily over the last 10 years or so, we've built a docket of you know, with our own whistleblowing clients and with other partners, other firms that have some clients who've had this experience, we've built experience and a docket of these whistleblower cases kind of growing organically out of our employment work and other civil rights work that we've done. And so it's been really fun to figure out how to use this law to address, you know, problems that we see. Matt, are you uh, ready for your favorite part? You want to spring it on him? Yeah. So Charlie did say he actually listened, so he might know what's coming up here. But we like to end our episodes with a shout out of the week. And it can be, it's pretty broad range. It could be your kids. It could be a political figure. It could be a book, TV show, anything. Just something positive to end our episodes with. So Jason Hahn once did his cat, I think. So I think that's right. Yeah. So who is your shout out of the week? You're going to stump me on it. I love the radio <laughs> silence. <laughs> You're going to edit that one out, right? It's, no, we're going to keep oh, that no, in. Stays in. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I'm going to say the beauty of Chicago in winter, right? I had my kids on the playground this morning in 25 degrees and glorious sunshine. And, and maybe because COVID forced, forced us there. But you can, you can be in the park, you can be in the forest preserve, you can be along the lake up by Loyola here where I am. Uh, it, it's a remarkable city and, and the cold is really, it's, uh, it makes you feel alive. And so there's, there's my shout out of the week, the beauty of Chicago in all seasons. <laughs> that wasn't so bad. Yeah. I don't know if I agree with that, but that wasn't so bad. <laughs> hey, you know, to, to eat your own, you don't like it, you can move, right? <laughs> no one's keeping you here. <laughs> Especially now that everything can be remote. <laughs> Early, yeah. uh, if people want to get in touch with you, whether to explore whether they've got a false claims case they can help bring and, and help the government recover some money, just learn more about what you do, get in touch with the otherwise, how do they do that? Sure. We're at hsplegal.com. And I, I am there. The website's there. Phone's there. Me and my colleagues, happy to talk with anybody. We love working with other lawyers. We love working with whistleblowers. We love working with nonprofits. You know, it, it, it's the best part of the job is these collaborations, in my view. I agree. Charlie, thank you for all your hard work on all of these important causes and cases. Thanks for sharing your knowledge and expertise and time with us today and for sharing sharing some good information with our audience. We appreciate it. Yeah, and I'm just happy I know how to pronounce it now because yeah. I've been pronouncing it key time wrong for the last yeah. dozen years. So. Hey, that's okay. <laughs> all right. Thanks to everybody at home for listening. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.